Welcome to The Blue Barrel, a podcast about Buddhism, Asian medicine, and spirituality. I'm your host, Dr. Pierce Salguero, a professor of Asian studies and medical humanities at Penn State's Abington College outside of Philadelphia. Today for our inaugural podcast, I'm sitting with editor-producer Lan Lee to set up season one. We talk about my background and my transition from being a practitioner of Thai Buddhism and traditional medicine to my current role as an academic. We also chat about our previous collaborations and our goals for the first season of the podcast. Hi, Lynn. Hi, Pierce. Good to see you. This is our first joint podcast. What what a joy. I'm really excited. I think we've got such a cool lineup, and I'm excited to talk about Buddhist medicine, and I'm really excited to talk about your work and our collaborations and just all the things. Well, thanks for producing and editing and teaching me how to use microphones and all of that stuff that has gone on behind the scenes before this moment has even come. Yeah, it was not that long ago where we were sitting at that picnic table near that lake and you had this five-year plan of starting your podcast series. And three months later, we have a whole lineup for seasons one and two. So do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'll just briefly say that I'm Pierce Salguero and I'm a professor at Penn State's Abington College outside of Philadelphia. And I'm a scholar specializing in Buddhism and medicine, or we could say Buddhist medicine. How about you, Lan? Mm. Introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. My name is Lan Lee. I am an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University in the Department of History of Medicine. And I mostly work on the history of Chinese medicine, broadly defined. And a lot of the methods I use in my work are pretty interdisciplinary. I'm drawing on histories of neuroscience and methods in art history. And I was trained in science studies at MIT. I also work as a filmmaker and editor, uh, really working with practitioners to understand integrative medicine and to represent or represent uh, plural, diverse Asian medical practices. And your website, so that people can find your films and other information about you. Oh, uh, it's lan-a-li. Uh, it doesn't really roll off the tongue, but it's, it's my name. <laughs> So why this podcast? What do you want to get out of this podcast? And what should people expect from season one? So the podcast, essentially, what I would like to do is start to have some conversations with colleagues in both the academic world as well as the practitioner world and try to produce some interesting conversations across that divide. This is something that I have been dedicating a lot of time and energy to over many decades. So people who know me won't be that surprised about the impulse behind the podcast. And what I'm thinking is that we'll start off with a season that's dedicated to Buddhist medicine, since that's my own area of expertise, but then to move from there into adjacent topics related to Buddhism and health, religious studies, more generally Asian religions, Asian medicine, mm -hmm. and what I'm calling embodied spirituality. So we'll just let things evolve organically as we go and see where we wind up in this exploration. But I do have the first season mapped out with a series of guests. So we'll be launching one episode per month for the next year. And we already have that lineup in place. So why did you decide to name this podcast Blue Barrel? What does it refer to? And it's not barrel like a barrel of, I don't know, whiskey, but Blue Barrel, what is it? What should people know about it? The Blue Barrel Gemstone is associated with the Medicine Buddha in Mahayana Buddhist traditions. It's a common 
metaphor or theme having to do with health and radiance and longevity. And so I was thinking about a name for this podcast and and the idea of the blue barrel came shining forth. So mm, it revealed yeah, itself. It, yes, it just came to me. So yeah, so that's that's where the name came from. So earlier this year, you came out with this book, this really beautiful short book called Buddhish. Uh, I mean, it was the introduction to Buddhism that I needed as someone who is not a scholar of religion, let alone Buddhism. And like, I do a lot of work on Asian medicine, but most of the things, maybe all the things I know about Buddhist medicine come from your work. And you talk a lot about your life leading up to your work as a scholar. And I think it'd be really cool for people to hear a little bit more about that part of your life. Um, So can you introduce to us maybe your early childhood and your career as a Thai massage practitioner and how that connects to your scholarly work? So I come from a transnational family that has roots in Colombia and in Uruguay and in the U.S. and in the U.K., and I grew up, I was born in Canada, but spent my early childhood in, in Paraguay and came to the U.S. when I was in elementary school. So I grew up with this bicultural, bilingual background across all of these continents. And I, I always attribute my interest in cross-cultural exchange and translation to that mm-hmm. early early background. But for whatever reason, from a really early age, I was interested, fascinated really by Asian religions. I wrote this blog post last year where I said, I think it all started with Star Wars. <laughs> so I moved to the US right at the time where the original Star Wars movies were coming out. And I think watching those movies when I was little and then following up with things like Karate Kid and other films from that era, I really think that they had some deeper effect on my trajectory because my family came from South America. I was bullied in elementary school for being different. And and I feel like those films, the worlds of possibility that they opened up to my imagination, they were in retrospect quite orientalist and had problems with the way they represented Asian culture and Asian American people. And I'm not at all excusing them on those counts, but at the same time that they did have those kinds of problems. They also suggested these kinds of alternative ways of being in the world, right? Being tapped into deeper currents of life and deeper currents of of connectedness and being able to both Luke and Daniel in both of those movies, they tap into something deeper than themselves and they cultivate powers that lead them out of the suffering and the confinement of their current lives and just open up the whole universe, really. So I think the messaging of those films somehow maybe got under my skin at that early age and set up a kind of a seeking for this wisdom that carried over into my interests in Chinese martial arts and and other kinds of Asian traditions. So I started reading the Upanishads at age 11 or 12 and had no idea what really what I was reading, but I just was was searching for portals to the kinds of possibilities that I thought could be out there. So did you did you learn martial arts as a young adult? Yeah, I did martial arts in high school. I started with Korean karate and then went into Aikido. Um, I did it for about like a good four years. Yeah, throughout all of high school. Cool. Yeah. And also at the same time, we had a Native American medicine man on 
mm-hmm. our campus when I was in high school who created a sweat lodge and it held ritual ceremonies on a weekly basis. And I apprenticed wow. myself to, to him. I was at a boarding school, so it was we, we had the space oh. on, on, on campus to have that facility. And so I was involved in that spirituality throughout high school as well. And at the same time, I was just really interested in Asian religions, particularly Buddhism, Taoism, um, Hinduism, just was voraciously reading everything that I could about those subjects. And when I when I got to college, I I somehow I translated all of those interests into a double major in anthropology and cognitive science and a minor in studies. Yeah, I was interested in in consciousness and big questions about how the mind works and 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 also about the lived traditions of religions around the world. So I spent four years at University of Virginia studying those subjects. And then when I graduated, decided to travel in Southeast Asia with a friend of mine um, on what was a scuba diving trip and intending fully to go back home. So that was a scuba diving trip. I thought you were like backpacking or something and like you were going to join a band. <clears throat> it was backpacking slash scuba diving um, for six months. And on, uh, I was supposed to go back to California and yes, join a rock band. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and so I spent some time in Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, but really found what I was looking for in Thailand. And it was supposed to be a six month trip with my friend and he left after six months, but I wound up living in Asia, headquartered in Thailand, but moving around a lot for the next four years or so. And really the mission was to explore some of these things that I had learned about in the classroom and in textbooks to really explore what these traditions look like on the ground. Wow. And yeah, you mentioned my practice of Thai medicine. So the things that really grabbed me when I was in Thailand were, on the one hand, Buddhist meditation retreats, mm-hmm. monastic centers, and I did a lot of a, a lot of that. And then on the other hand, uh, also learning uh, traditional medicine in Thailand from various different sources. I spent some time at a traditional medicine hospital and also did a number of informal apprenticeship type trainings with with uh, mm. practitioners around Chiang Mai. This was back in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, just these two things, right? Doing meditation in monastic centers on the one hand, and then learning traditional Thai medicine on the other hand, I got to see how intertwined Buddhism and medicine really were from actually both sides. So mm. there's things I saw in the monastery that involved various different types of healing. And then there was things that I saw among the healers that I was working with that really, really connected with Buddhism. And so I, I mm. very much learned from the very beginning that these were two inseparably intertwined areas mm. of knowledge. Yeah. How would you characterize Thai herbal medicine? Well, there's different forms of it. Thailand's a diverse place and there's a lot Mm -hmm. of regional variation. There's a lot of local differences to the plants also. And so from the north to the south, it's quite different. And ideas as well as materia medica that are used is quite different. But there is a central Thai literary tradition of medicine, which has become the, the nationally recognized form of traditional medicine that is centered around Bangkok. And that form of medicine is actually closely related in terms of the theory. It's cl- it's most closely related to Ayurveda. It has mm-hmm. a similar mm-hmm. foundational structure, although some major differences with Ayurveda, but that's its most 
its closest relative. But then when you look at the actual pharmacopoeia, the thing, the, the materia medica that are being used, Thai medicine draws in Indian herbal substances, but it also draws in a lot of medicinals from China, as well as mm. local Southeast Asian herbs. So it's quite a, it's quite a diverse selection of materia medica. Mm-hmm. And then how did you decide to become a Thai massage practitioner? You know, so I, I was learning initially in the form of 10-day workshops. And so the first thing I did was attend a 10-day meditation retreat. And then I went and attended a 10-day um, uh, Thai massage training. And oh. then I went back back for more meditation and then mm-hmm. back and forth between uh, Buddhist workshops and, and, and Thai medicine workshops. Um, and it, it started with massage and then branched out from there to herbal medicine and then eventually also to ritual and magical healing practices. So I think what drew me to the massage, it, it, it's funny because I was drawn to the to the Buddhist meditation and the massage at the same time for really radically different reasons. The meditation, Theravada Buddhist meditation is very much in this transcendent vein of Asian religions, right? It's about transcending the worldly, seeing through the illusory nature of the worldly life Mm. and things. And then on the other hand, Thai massage is very much about being embodied. It's very much about Mm -hmm. breathing and and, Mm -hmm. and stretching. Thai massage is like... The quickest way to describe it is it's like having somebody put your body into yoga postures and then mm-hmm. do shiatsu on you while you're in those yoga postures, right? Mm-hmm. The people who don't know what Thai yeah. massage looks like. It's very um, interactive. It's very physical. Whether you're receiving it or giving it, you're intertwined with another person. Mm-hmm. It's it's very tactile and embodied um, and you're paying attention to your breathing and your movements and your mm-hmm. alignment of your posture and so forth. And there's a whole logic behind it that relates to at least the style that I learned had a whole s- system behind it related to energy lines in the body and, and manipulation of energy using breath and posture and so forth. So so related to both Chinese medicine and Indi- it's more closely related to Indian like Hatha yoga ideas. But anyways, these two things were unfolding for me simultaneously. And I, th- I think there were intention for for years. On the one hand, this transcendent idea of meditation leading to dissolution of the mind and body and escaping the world into this emptiness of nirvana on the one hand, and then this much more embodied way of doing healing work, but also cultivating the body and the breath and so forth. And so these two practices, I learned them both at the same time. To me, they were very complementary. In a a way, doing Thai massage was like my yoga practice Mm -hmm. that was keeping me Mm -hmm. limber and healthy and keeping my body moving while interspersed with these long periods of silent, still meditation retreats. I eventually did go to India and and spent a better part of a year learning Hatha Yoga. These retreat centers, and one in South India, one in the Himalayas, that I spent months learning intensive yoga practice and, you know, rituals and chanting and within a Hindu context. Um, I never, I never connected with the Hindu spirituality, but the, the physical and the breath and the energetic component of yoga, I adopted that into my practice. But to me, these two streams of transcendence and embodiment were unfolding at the same time through these Mm. two practices. So what are some examples of healing practices that you saw when you were at the monastery in Thailand? So all, all kinds of stuff, actually. 
in that setting, basically every time we ate, we were giving consideration to the taste of the food. And in Thai mm-hmm. medicine, there's a correlation between the flavor of the food and the effect that it has on the four elements, earth, water, fire, and wind in your body, and how that relates to the season and how that relates to seasonal being being seasonally fit so that you're not, you don't wow. come down with different kinds of ailments and so forth. Another place where I saw a lot of healing activity was actually in the bathhouse. So this is one of the mm. places where the the formality of the monastic order dissolves, the hierarchies dissolve, and people would be giving each other massages and other kinds of like treatments in the bathhouses on the monastic grounds. So probably the most impactful or most memorable time that I saw healing practices being done in the monastery was when a fellow lay resident was bitten by a very large poisonous centipede while I was there. He collapsed and his whole body was becoming Mm. really rigid and he was having trouble breathing. And somebody ran to go get the doctor monk. So there's a a monk who had some training in traditional medicine before he became a monastic. And so he comes running over and he gave a prescription of herbs from the forest and made a quick tea out of those and asked us to give the patient this concoction. But Mm. he also told us to stay with him and to chant the standard Theravada Buddhist chant, but to mm-hmm. chant this throughout the night with him until he became better. And so I recently wrote a piece earlier this year in Tricycle Magazine where I told this story in more detail. And what I say there is that my first reaction really was to see the chant as a placebo mm-hmm. and the the herb as the real medicine. But what I came to realize by sitting and chanting with him all night um, was how many beneficial effects the chanting actually had on him. So first of all, the fact that he was surrounded by people that were chanting with him has this social dimension to health, right? He wasn't alone. He had support. He had comradeship in his time of need. The fact that we were calling upon the Buddha, chanting the Buddha's name and and so Mm -hmm. forth, I'm sure had also a a uplifting effect on him. He felt, I'm sure, protected. And I don't discount the positive psychological effect that that would have on somebody. But then there was this very physiological effect that I saw of him attempting to chant with us in this Theravada Buddhist culture. In order to chant the Namotasa properly, you have to chant it with this deep voice and this slow mm. breathing. It becomes this almost like circular breathing that you do, right? Namotasa Bhagavato, right? So in order for him to get his voice to do that, he really had to regulate his breath. And then as mm-hmm. he's regulating his breath, there's the vibration of the chant is having this soothing effect on his rigid torso. And so in any case, he did become better by morning. He was feeling much better. But my takeaway from that night was that there was so many layers to this healing practice that was, Mm. yes, there was an herb, but there was also this social uh, dimension, this psychological dimension, and this physiological Mm -hmm. dimension to the chanting that really, I think, provided a lot of relief and was very healing in that moment too. And so it's just an example of how multi-layered Buddhist healing practice can be, how many different levels it can be operating on at the same time, and really how 
I think how skillful these practices are in mobilizing all of those different levels simultaneously in order to provide healing. So in that moment, did you did you feel like you made a connection that was beyond breath and beyond physiology? Uh, not not to say that this is a detached beyondness, but something that was not necessarily just that. I definitely think that chanting together with other people. See, I've experienced this many, many times where chanting together with other people produces, maybe we call it like a field effect where mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you feel like you're subsumed into or incorporated into a larger body. Um, this can also happen with uh, meditating in a group or doing other kinds of practices in a group. But certainly when chanting the Buddha's name in order to help this person who was in obvious pain, it certainly feels like there's a unification of the field of people who are chanting together and that mm -hmm. that field is permeated by a feeling of compassion and, and wanting somebody to be well, right? Ontologically, I, I'm, I'm agnostic about what, what's going on there, but subjectively, definitely is a moment where you as an individual's separate self drops away and you become part of this mm -hmm. larger field. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I think whether people use the word spiritual or divine or what have you to refer to those kinds of experiences. They're quite common in the right setting with the right, with the right chant. That's yeah, awesome. So. so what's the, what do you think is the difference between chanting and prayer? This may be my own distinction, but some Buddhist practices are what I think of as prayer, which is asking for another being to appear or manifest somehow in the human realm and to take action on our behalf, right? So praying to mm. Guan Yin Bodhisattva to appear and save somebody from a disaster of some kind, I think that's quite common in Mahayana Buddhism and I think is is appropriately referred to as prayer. I would say what we were doing that night is, is a little bit different. Um, it wasn't invoking the presence of the Buddha to come and heal this kid who was bitten by the centipede, but rather chanting the Buddha's name and, and the homage to the Buddha in order to tap into this, this energy or this power or this presence or whatever English word you want to use to tap into this stream of beneficial vibrations, you could say, that mm -hmm. could have benefit for this person that we're chanting for, right? That we as a circle that are chanting around him can generate or open up this beneficial energy mm -hmm. um, in order to help him. And that I think is different than prayer. And that's, I think, more consistent with the way that is understood in, in Thailand or in Theravada mm -hmm, Buddhism, yeah. which is why you see people using talismans, talismanic tattoos and drawn talismans on paper and so forth in, in their physical space, in their homes, in order to protect and empower their spaces. Why you would have monks come and chant in a like the medicine school that I trained at, they would have monks come and chant during their big annual ceremonies in order mm. to purify the space, right? To to clear out any negative energies that have accumulated mm -hmm. throughout the year from whatever reason, right? That they could mm -hmm. come and chant and clear out the space once a year and do that by by chanting. I think it's working, it's working more on on this kind of logic. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Um and so what was the hardest thing that you have ever done or that you did while you were at the retreat or at the monastery in Thailand or in that period of your life? 
that first meditation retreat of that first 10 day silent meditation retreat as a 23 year old was probably the most difficult thing um, because what happens in that kind of environment, I mean, first of all, when you're 23, you just you have so much energy just running through your body that you're stifling by sitting in this cross-legged position for literally 12 hours a day um, and being silent and only eating small amounts of food. And I just had so much energy that would have been expressed in other ways, more active physical ways, like we just all became internalized. Like a pressure cooker, a bomb ready to explode or something. Mm. And and I, so I had all yeah. of these symptoms that like, this actually is true over all three of the first, those first 10 day retreats. I said, I did like 30 days within a period of two months, all kinds of stuff coming up, like panic attacks, like anger. Wow. Um, I had a full body breakout of boils. I had both mental and physical kind of manifestations of that pressure. And it's really hard not to run away. And I definitely wanted to run away. And I definitely had a lot of, you know, emotional and psychological fires burning at that point in, in my life. And it was really, really hard to stay there and face all of that and not turn away, not tune out, not just like sleep. Wow. Uh, so yeah, I would say that was pretty hard. <laughs> oh man. I mean, just having tiny bits of food and then having these breakouts like boils. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. All over my face, my whole body. They say all this stuff, they call it a sankara and all of this is your sankara is coming out to be purified. So there was a framework for it. It wasn't unexpected, but it still wasn't easy. Mm -hmm. I feel like those 30 days were kind of this watershed moment. It's kind of like a line drawn between everything that happened before then. And then that shift happened and I was like a different person after that. Even the the way my personality was, the way I talked, the contents of my thoughts, all my values that I had up to that point transformed. Oh my and, gosh. And changed, yeah. That's a really cool origin story. Um, so how did you decide to become an academic? What was that path like for you? Yeah, I think there's two ways to answer that. The first is that really throughout the time that I was in Southeast Asia, I was learning through apprenticeships and other kinds of opportunities for firsthand practice, as well as in retreats and monastic centers. But I was really thirsty for books. And so I made a few side trips throughout those years to India. And I would always, whenever I went to India, would always come back with literally one of those old steamer trunks full of books that I would buy in Delhi because they had this great English language book market. And I would spend months and months and months in my little house outside of Chiang Mai reading these books and studying and highlighting and underlining and taking notes and so forth. Even my approach to Thai medicine was also somewhat scholarly because I was involved in in translating materials and cataloging materials. And I had these voluminous notes. Eventually I published them when I came back to the States many years later, but I had all of these notes on the practice of Thai medicine and so forth. And when I was learning ritual healing and other kinds of Buddhist practices, I was again, copiously taking notes, photographing everything, just like doing field work, really. I don't think ever stopped being a scholar. But what happened is that over time, I just realized that those kinds of activities were actually more fulfilling than the healing practice itself. And so eventually when the fork in the road came, do I want to be a practitioner of traditional medicine or a scholar, uh, the, the scholarly the scholarly path was the one that clearly was the, the right choice for me. 
Wow. Another way of answering that question is to talk about the pivotal moment where I decided not to be a monastic because I had this idea that I would be become a Theravada Buddhist monk in Thailand. And I carried that idea around with me for the whole time that I was in Southeast Asia. I was learning meditation in different retreat centers. And like I said, studied Hatha yoga in India. And I really envisioned this quest as collecting the practices that I would need in mm. order to take with me to devote a life to being a contemplative, to being a monastic. Um, but what, along the way, I also met the person who's now my wife in India mm -hmm. at one of those yoga retreats. Yeah. So the Thai massage and yoga things unfolding, this embodied energetic kind of practice is unfolding. This disembodied transcendent meditation practice is unfolding. And then also my relationship with her is unfolding, right? Mm -hmm. All simultaneously. And and they're just sending all these mix, mixed messages that I was having trouble squaring. And at one point I was just like, okay, I have to see if this transcendent path is the one for me, because if that is, then all this other stuff has to fall away. Um, and so in the summer of 2001, I spent the summer in um, monastery in Eastern Thailand mm -hmm. at uh, Wat Pananachat in uh, the far east of the country. And I actually bought a one-way ticket to Thailand and made no promises about whether or not I would come back. Mm, wow. Talk about quests. That is, that's intense. I don't think I've gotten a one-way ticket anywhere yet. That is so much drama. <laughs> this is, I'm going to disappear. You may never see me again. I was giving it a serious try, but it was, it didn't take very long in the <laughs> monastery before I was like, oh, wait, this isn't, this isn't my path. And I talk about it in, in Buddhist, the pivot and how that came about, but the main takeaway was that I just realized that I didn't want to dedicate a life to transcending the world, but I wanted to be in the world. And then the rest of the pieces fell into place, really dedicated to Asian medicine and mm -hmm. to spiritual practices. I mm -hmm. know I don't want to be a monastic. How can I spend the rest of my life immersed in these topics full time while also mm -hmm. being able to travel and, and continue to immerse myself in these practices in real life as well? So, wow. So wanting this not to be like my thing that I do after I get home from the nine to five, but actually be like the centerpiece of what I was dedicating my time to all day. Um, and the only way I could think of to do that was to be a practitioner of Thai medicine. And so I came back and reunited with Marcy and, and went into grad school because I wanted to have like some credentials as a practitioner and a, and a teacher of traditional medicine. So then I went into grad school and then started a process of realizing how skewed my ideas were about Asian medicine and Buddhism that I, this thing that I was wanting to dedicate my life to, wow. um, and just realizing through the coursework and speaking with scholars and having this scholarly perspective being introduced to me, really how skewed my ideas were. And I wanted to really genuinely know more about these traditions. And so I dove into the scholarships. So I was I was a part-time student taking one or two classes a semester for like five years. So all, all that time I was doing practice of Thai medicine, but I, I realized somewhere along the line by the end of those five years that I was not really 
cut out to be a practitioner, but actually I was cut out to be a scholar. But I would say that whole process of that five-year period was a process of realizing what you do and don't talk about in scholarly circles, right? I definitely was like a committed practitioner showing up in these classes and just being like, wait a minute, no, that can't be right. And then having to like do the research and see for myself that much of what I wanted to focus on for my life and my career were actually Orientalist fantasies. And so I recognized that I had a romanticized Mm -hmm. view of these practices and I just was like, whoa, there's so much here that I need to take on board and need to rethink. Actually, throughout grad school and throughout my early career, I used to do actually quite a bit of teaching and lecturing and seminars and so forth in practice communities and Thai massage primarily, but also yoga and some Chinese medicine schools with practitioners. And I came from that world. So I continued to have a foot in that world and had this longstanding real question about how these two worlds could be integrated in my own life, right? Just how to how to reconcile what I knew as a practitioner and what I was learning as a scholar. Mm -hmm. You know, there's tension within the field between an approach to Buddhism, which is celebratory and takes at face value the Buddhist Mm -hmm. claims and that sees a ton of value in practicing Buddhism and in preserving the Dharma and teaching the Dharma on the one hand, Mm -hmm. and then the scholarly critical more deconstructive or contextualizing impulse of professional academia, on the other hand. And I think most scholars in the field have, I think, a fraught relationship with that binary and and try to navigate it in various different ways. And some of them do it by like firmly rejecting the former in favor of the latter in public, but then but in secret, yeah. Meditation and, and going to, yeah, going to yeah, temple yeah. and so forth. Double life. And, and then other people try to do the, I think, try to do this like half and half, like I'm a scholar practitioner thing. And they mm-hmm. they can modulate their voice in different communities, depending on who their audience is. In, in any case, I actually think um, it's something that's been interesting to me for many years is that that's the same dynamic and divide that I also find is in the Asian medicine scholarly community. We have the same fraught relationship with Asian medicine as a living practice and as Mm -hmm. something that a lot of us have exposure to and have experience Mm -hmm. with and value greatly and feel like needs to be preserved and taught. And then on the other hand, the critical scholarly work that we do, they don't always necessarily jive. And so there's lots of people in our community of Asian medicine that have secret lives as well, or, yeah. or they're doing the scholar yeah. practitioner thing and, and being bilingual in different settings. And so it's often unsaid, but implied in academic settings that, you know, it's a place where we're expected to show up in a particular way um, and, and other ways aren't really welcome. We should only show up as partial people with really mm. just the intellectual self, not necessarily our emotional self or our self as a member of a family, as a member of a Mm. uh, community. And I think that that's changing recently with more inclusive practices at conferences and so forth. But I felt that tension for sure. And in some ways, depersonalization too, because I feel like that pure space of critique, I think, is also ingrained as a, a lifestyle and a habitus and an expected way that we should be like policing our own thinking and, mm. and emotional lives. And I would say there's one perspective that carried me through that I really would credit with not allowing me to fall into the meaninglessness, which is the whole reason that I was attracted to the academic route in the first place. It's going to sound 
naive or cheesy or something. I don't know. But for me, the academic path has always been primarily a spiritual path. It's been primarily mm-hmm. a, a path of learning and and development. Yeah, I'm thinking about bell hooks and the kind of work that transgresses between our personal and professional lives. Like, what is the point of the work that we do if not to make sense of our lives? And there, there's a lot at stake. So, do you did you did you maintain any of those practices? Do you still meditate or do Thai massage or yoga? So I haven't done any kind of healing practice since 2005 when I left Virginia and moved to the state of Maryland to go to Johns Hopkins University for my PhD. And uh, Virginia at the time anyway, I don't know about now, but it was very loose in terms of its licensure requirements. And the fact that I had trained in Thailand was was enough for me to be a mm-hmm. practitioner in Virginia. When Once I moved to Maryland, the licensure laws were much stricter and they mm-hmm. didn't have a way for somebody to practice massage legally unless you had gone through formal massage therapy training. And I didn't want to do that, so I just dropped the practice. I continued to teach history and more theoretical matters related to Thai medicine, as well as connections between medicine and Buddhism. I continued to teach at Thai massage schools throughout the rest of the time I was in grad school, but I didn't continue to practice myself. As far as meditation, I tell the story in the book Buddhish that just came out about how I sort of transitioned away from doing the meditation that I had been really invested in when I lived in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. I tra- transitioned away from that kind of practice. And I haven't really done sort of formal, systematized Buddhist meditation since that time. Oh. I do have my own contemplative practices that I have continued to do since then. And I continue to do yoga actually um, an hour plus a day I have since then. So like- that's, yeah, that's really cool. Um, okay. So let's talk about the academic work. Uh, your dissertation, Translating Buddhist Medicine in Medieval China, and the two anthologies that you edited are about primary sources, the pre-modern and contemporary primary sources related to Buddhist medicine. And then there is this new Global History of Buddhism and Medicine book that just came out. So each of these books address Buddhist medicine at different scales. So translating Buddhist medicine is very, it's a, a way into ontology, metaphor, primary sources. And the anthologies are producing primary sources, collecting primary sources, creating a scholarly field And then the global history book is just like, it's heroic. It's rallying a history that I think many people would find impossible to undertake because of the scope, because of the depth of knowledge that you need, because of the access to language and different sources. Um, But it does seem like each of these books build on each other. So I guess it's important to say that there was this moment during my master's degree where I realized that I wasn't actually going to be pursuing the history of Thai medicine and Thai Buddhism. Mm. When I first came into the master's degree program, I just come from Thailand. That was all I knew was Theravada Buddhism. All I knew Mm. was Thai medicine. And that was my primary interest. But it it didn't take me too long to figure out that the, the sources are just really not available in Southeast Asia. At least in Thailand, there aren't sources for Buddhist related healing practices or Thai medicine really predating the 16th century at all. So I was interested in going much further back in time than that. 
And when I realized that that wasn't going to be possible using the Thai sources, I was a little bit disappointed, but I was like, okay, I'm just going to write my master's thesis on contemporary Thai medicine. And so that, that's what I did. But about halfway through, I came across Michelle Strickman's book, Chinese Magical Medicine. I looked at that book and was just completely flabbergasted. So the book is a study of medieval Chinese Buddhist and Taoist healing practices. Mm. And when I read that book, what I was reading was so similar to the kinds of practices that I had been involved in in Thailand mm. that it was clear to me that these practices had a history that went way back further than the 16th century in Southeast Asia wow. that went all the way back to the 5th and the 6th and the 7th century in China. Mm -hmm. And it opened up these questions about Indian origins and the circulation of knowledge around Asia and what are the relationships between Thai medicine and Chinese medicine and Indian medicine. Mm -hmm. I knew already the relations between Thai massage in Thailand and yogas from India and Tibet and, and mm -hmm. elsewhere. And I just really got interested in the connections between these cultures and, and the role of Buddhism everywhere in circulating those, or seemingly at the time, I didn't really know how mm -hmm. important the role of Buddhism was, but it seemed that Buddhism was playing a role in circulating these kinds of ideas around. So I finished up my master's thesis on Thailand, but but actually a couple of years before that was done was already pivoting to China, started taking courses in Chinese history, started mm -hmm. studying classical Chinese. Mm -hmm. Eventually, when I finished the master's degree at the University of Virginia, I emailed Nathan Sivan, who's recently passed away, but a very venerated scholar. He's like a founding figure in the field of the history mm -hmm. of Chinese medicine. And I asked to study with him at Penn and he said he was retiring mm -hmm. or he would retire before I finished. And so he advised that I go and study with his student, Marta Hansen, who had just gotten a job at Johns Hopkins. And so mm -hmm. I applied to Hopkins to do a dissertation on Chinese Buddhist medicine under her so my interests already at that time were much larger than just medieval China. I was already mm -hmm. interested in this global picture of the circulation of knowledge between South Asia and East Asia and Southeast mm -hmm. Asia. But you can't do that work for a dissertation. Nobody was going to support a global history of Buddhism and medicine. 2,500 years of history, a project like that for a graduate student would be absurd. So I put those interests in the broader picture on the shelf for a little while and focused in on medieval China. Um, but even so, my focus when I was writing about medieval China was on cross-cultural exchange. It was on the translation mm -hmm of Indian knowledge in China. How can we talk about, how can we think about the movement of ideas across cultures and how do we, how do the dynamics of those kinds of exchanges work, right? So mm -hmm. I was working out in that book using one example of medieval mm -hmm. China. I was working out a methodology for thinking about the larger whole at a time when I wasn't going to be able to work on that larger whole yet. Um, so, so this cool. was like yeah. a long-term plan, uh, finished that in 2010, and then that became the book in 2014. And so once I got tenure, then I was like, okay, now I can do that global history book that I've been wanting to do all along. 
But the problem was that um, by this point, I really knew how much material there was. I don't think I had any idea back when I was doing my master's degree how huge of a project this actually would be. Mm. But by the time I was pivoting from my first book to look at the global picture, it was clear that there was just tons of material from all around the world, that it would be impossible for one person to be able to read all those primary sources and be able to pull together mm -hmm. a big picture story that I wanted to tell. And so what I decided to do was to create the source base. And I did that by launching this anthology project. So the anthology project is two volumes. In the end, it's like 1500 pages, something like 85 scholars that contributed mm. to it. And so in the years that I was working on the anthology, I was also cultivating these kinds of friendships and relationships across multiple fields with anthropologists, with historians, mm -hmm. with practitioners, with literary scholars, translators, mm. all sorts of people who were contributing to these volumes, reading the stuff that they were writing, often encouraging them to write on subjects that, that were related to Buddhism and medicine if they weren't already doing that, and really building a community of scholars, building a field, and building a source base. And eventually when yeah. those anthologies were published in 2017 and 2020, I had the source base on which to be able to build a comprehensive history of Buddhism and medicine. So it gave me the opportunity to pull all of that together, both the, the primary sources and all of the secondary sources, pull it all together into a big sprawling summary of 2,500 years of history of the relationship between Buddhism and medicine. That's that's remarkable. It's really, really unusual to see work like this, for sure. You can be a scholar in so many different ways, right? If you really want to bury your head in one text or in one single decade of history and spend your whole life rooting around in that one spot, you can do that. And you can also mm -hmm. do scholarship in a completely different way, wide, wide ranging to change your subject matter. And I guess for me, the thing that has been the consistent thing has been the fact that I've prioritized a collaborative approach to scholarship. And I'm acutely aware of how broad my interests are. My mind just seems to work in that way that wants to make connections mm -hmm. across wide ranging time and space. But I'm acutely aware of how how few languages I can read and how little I actually am able to do myself as a single scholar. I've really valued collaboration and have really depended on collaboration. For me, that also has included recently now another pivot where I'm moving into the next phase or next cycle of my career. One of the things I'm primarily focused on now is providing opportunities for mentorship for junior scholars. For example, I have a couple edited volumes with junior co-editors mm -hmm. that are, are coming out. And then the work that I'm doing with the Asian Medicine Journal as the editor-in-chief there is to implement a formal mechanism or a structure at the journal for how do we mentor in particular junior scholars and scholars from outside the Anglosphere? How do we create an equitable editorial process at the journal in order to really be able to provide a, a platform for these scholars to succeed? And that parallels work that I'm doing on my own campus with teaching undergraduates, which we don't need to talk about now, but maybe that'll come back in a future episode. The focus now is on realizing 
how fortunate I've been in, in trying to assist others with moving forward in their own careers. No, um, I've just I've just learned so much from working with you. I think we first met at the uh, at AAS, the Association for Asian Studies. Um, I think you'd been I don't know how long you'd been editor in chief of Asian medicine, and I was I was either a grad student or early in my postdoc, and you encouraged me to submit my paper to Asian medicine, and that ended up becoming my first academic peer reviewed publication. Um, but I've I've learned so much from just the process of how you stagger mentorship in a way that enables students to realize their potentials as researchers because they're working on short essays about a site that they may or may not have a connection to, but that they can find information on through somewhat unconventional means like Facebook groups, websites, pamphlets. And then just watching you work with them through the editorial process helped me build out the Medicine Race Democracy Lab, which I started at Rice. But this whole process of working on the Jivica Global Project with you um, really gave me a foundation that I could implement. So you might be framing that encounter that we had at AS as me providing mentorship for you. But actually, I think the relationship was entirely mutual because I was really interested in your expertise as a filmmaker for a project that I was getting off the ground at that moment doing ethnographic work in Philadelphia. So do you mm. want to talk a little bit about your films that you made before? Yeah. Yeah. So I've I've always been interested in integrative medicine, broadly defined, institutionally defined. I mean, it's related to medical plurality, which I know is a non-neutral space of medical practices. And so the films that I made in grad school with physicians in Mumbai, and some of them were in Sao Paulo, Boston, Shanghai, um, was about how they negotiated different forms of plurality, um, whether it's through Ayurveda, nutrition, or acupuncture. And I always wanted to present those kinds of practices in a way that wasn't orientalist uh, and gave a certain kind of aesthetic that felt more contemplative and not so much new agey. I mean, not that I have anything against it, but I remember when we were at AAS, I asked you, I think we were talking about the about Netflix, maybe season two of Chef's Table just came out. And there was a South Korean monk who talked about cooking at her monastery. And I mean, I would love to taste her shiitake mushrooms, but we both found that somewhat like somewhat stereotypical, like a bit of a cliche. And you wanted to show the loud, messy communal aspects of food in Buddhist temples. And at that time, I knew very little about Buddhism, let alone Buddhist temples, where they were. I didn't even know Philly. And so we went on this crash course. Um, I mean, it was more of a crash course for me. And we drove around to all these neighborhoods. And my first attempt to make sense of different Buddhist sites around Philly was using my iPhone. I was filming in like slow motion and wide angle. Like it was really fun. Um, and then we went into the temples and you organized field trips for us. And I would film and you would explain to me what was happening. But uh, I'd also just wander around and try to pick up on what was interesting to me. So that was a really formative experience. Yeah. And in, in our filming, I actually thought that it was great that you weren't practicing Buddhist or a Buddhist scholar. Oh, when, good. <laughs> I feel like when a, when a Buddhist scholar or a practicing Buddhist shows up in a temple, they already know what to look at. They already know what to pay attention to. And they're like, mm. oh, that's the Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva. And this one over here is the offering in front of blah, blah, blah. Right. So they, they're, you're, we're already so steeped in the Buddhist traditions that it's like, we're not actually embodied beings in the space. We're just kind of like reading the text that's in front of us. Right. But, but for you, I felt like I really enjoyed watching you. Yeah. 
just like walking into a temple and being like, wow, look at this little thing. And and you would walk over to some random thing that I wouldn't have noticed um, because I would have just been like, oh yeah, that's the offering table and not actually paid attention to what was on it. Mm. I've just like read the text that that's, that's the offering, but you would go over and zoom in on it and like really find these very sensory details. Like the, the, the filming is almost, yeah, it's tactile, right? You're, you're zooming in on things and I'm watching the video, but I can like feel it in my hands or smell it, you know, the skin of an orange or the ashes in the, in incense burner and so forth, just in a way that I think somebody with a more experienced eye in a Buddhist temple setting would probably not have mm. paid much attention to. Yeah. And in the end, we wound up with these six short films that investigate or highlight different aspects of Buddhism and medicine all over Philadelphia. And we have a film on, for example, meditation, film mm -hmm. on ritual healing. The film on food is fantastic. And it's a great contrast to the Netflix episode mm -hmm. that you mentioned. Very boisterous and loud at the local Thai temple here during Songkran Festival. We have a film that emphasizes the social dimension of temples. And then we also have a film on the connections between Buddhist temples and mainstream healthcare in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. things like health fairs and hospital hospice work and so forth. I mean, it really shows, I think, a really wide range of different ways that Buddhism and medicine intersect, but it also really highlights the diversity of Buddhism in Philadelphia, the diversity of Asian American communities that are here, and to just kind of like move away from a very essentialized idea of what Buddhism is, that it's the teachings of the Buddha in this, in this or that mm, set wow. of scriptures and this or that set of practices that we can just kind of extract out. I keep trying to emphasize the differences and also just the lived experience of Buddhist practice as a as a living breathing thing that's closely intertwined with things like food and mm -hmm. gender and institutions mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. rituals and all, all of those mm -hmm. things. So I love them. I think it was a fantastic collaboration that we had, Lan. I really enjoyed working with you on those. Yeah, I it was never really could have done cool. it myself. So thank you so much <laughs> for everything you brought to that. Same. That was that was a lot of fun. And since then Jivika Philly has exploded into Jivika Global. Like you have so many more sites beyond Philly. Yeah. Um, I mean, the idea is to make it an open project where faculty from other universities would be able to contribute and send their students out into the field to do, you know, eth ethnography and video and photography and audio recordings and so forth, and then have a common place where everybody can upload their materials in order to create like a global database of Buddhism and medicine. That's that's so cool. That's awesome. So in your Buddhist book, you described that your pivot to academia was your awakening in a way where you wanted to be a part of the world rather than detached from it. And 20 years later, the work that you're doing is still an intentional engagement with the world. You have written so many books. I'm going to say that you have published 15 books. Let's say that. It's five academic books, two crossover books, four Thai medicine books, three of which had second editions. So seven, okay. nine plus five. So yeah. Oh, I was close. 14. And, and then one more. Oh, and there's one, at the, awesome. there's one at a publisher's now. So 15 and a half, I guess. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so what is your relationship to writing? I feel like books are channeled through me. Mm -hmm. Like there's like a kind of pressure 
that builds and builds and builds. And then it's like, okay, this book has to be written. And then during the summer, I'm like, okay, I've got this big block of time to sit and write. Then I just sit down and the whole thing just just kind of pours out. That is uh, in, so in cool. That is not my relationship to writing. I'm a writer. I mean, you could disagree that I'm a good writer, but I definitely am a writer because there just is that sort of that impulse. Um, and what's interesting is I used to be a musician. I used to write music and I would have the same process where it would just build and build and build. And suddenly it would just be like, boom, and it would all come out. Wow. Uh, I just sit down at the piano and just like play a whole thing um, sort of all at once, just flowing. But since I started writing, I don't write music anymore. So the oh. two sort of impulses seem to be coming from the same place, from the same source. And it's like the source is now directed towards writing words instead of music. Um, I used to write a lot of music in like college and grad school. And I feel like I have a similar relationship between the two. Like I kind of have to catch that wave or that wind. And then I have something to say. I mean, as creators, we kind of, um, we're just riding this tide. You, you got to jump on the wave when it's forming, right? The surfer, <laughs> the surfer has to yeah. take the wave that they've got, right? So yeah, yeah. Yeah. Then and, and, and sometimes I, cool. I've been, I've been right now actually thinking about a, there's a book that I think I should write. And then there's a book that mm. is wanting to be written. <laughs> They're not the same book. So that can be a little bit of a sort of like a, push pull between what what I think should come next and then what, what wave is actually coming. That's really cool. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So we've been giving people some background information about us and about where this current podcast fits into our history of collaborating together and where it fits into my own work with Buddhism and medicine. So I guess now is just the time to invite people to come along on the journey and to um, enjoy the episodes that we have in store throughout this season that's focused on Buddhism and medicine. And yeah, anything you want to say, Lan, just to close us out here? No, I'm just I'm just really looking forward to the season. Thanks so much for bringing me along, Pierce. Yeah, well, thanks for making it happen. that is it for today from us at the Blue Barrel Podcast. This episode was hosted by Pierce Alguero and produced and edited by me, Lan Lee. All of our music is by Jonathan Pettit. If you're listening to us on one of our partner podcasts, make sure to catch all of our episodes on piercealguero.com or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also support us by making a donation to patreon.com slash blue barrel. Until next time, be happy and be well.